Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Log Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon. The show are the stories we live by. And today I have a special guest, Dr. Chuck Rubio. Ruby. You could tell what I have on my mind when I said that. Chuck Ruby, who for the past 20 years has been a licensed psychologist in a large private group practice. He is also the general manager and director of the practice. His work mostly consists of individual psychotherapy with adult clients experiencing a wide range of emotional and behavioral problems. Prior to his time as a psychotherapist, uh, Chuck spent 20 years in the U.S. military as a commissioned officer with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. During the last four of those years, he served as an investigating psychologist, providing forensic psychological science support to military invest- investigators worldwide. He is also the executive director of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the public about the ethics, and possibly the lack of them, of the mental health industry. Good afternoon, Chuck. Good afternoon, Larry. It's glad, I'm glad to be here and uh, talking with you. So you have the title of of this story today is Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled by Mental Illness, Um, and it is a completed manuscript that uh, I have no doubt will be published and I hope makes an enormous impact on how the mental health industry operates. So what was behind your motivation? What was the motivation for writing the book? And can you tell us a little bit about some of the main ideas that are contained within it? Sure. Um, I have an interesting story. As you mentioned, I spent 20 years in the military with no indication at all, no thought that we'd end up just... Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Um so I did get an undergraduate degree in psychology, uh, but again, never thought that would go anywhere. So, anyways, after uh, um, you know most of my career, I had an opportunity to become an investigative psychologist and uh, go to Florida State University, be trained in clinical psychology, and uh, then return to the military for another four years, where I did what what you mentioned. Uh, so I, after I retired after that, I came into the, the clinical psychology field relatively late in life, and most people are at that point, or maybe late 20s or so, uh, mid-20s, uh-huh. I, I may, perhaps I didn't have as much reverence for the field as, as most people did, and I really, frankly, didn't have uh, the financial need to sort of toe the line and be a company yes-man in the 
clinical psychology field. So I was introduced early on to the works of Thomas Saz. Uh, his, right. his most well-known well uh, book was The Myth of Mental Illness, Foundations for a Theory of Personal Conduct. And when I read that, uh, I was shocked because I was already in the field at the time, and I had bought hook, line, and sinker about the reality of mental illness as a true illness. When I read that, uh, as I said, I was shocked that I could not in any way uh, discount his arguments. And so starting out in private practice, uh, sort of with this, this tension within me about what I was doing, and, and in particular the ethics of what I was doing, because on one hand I was following an industry standard that uh, was a medical model, and on the other hand I really didn't believe in that medical model. So it took me some time to gave, I don't know, gather up enough nerve to cha formally challenge the system. And so it was somewhere around the early 2000s I started writing this book. Uh, the name of the book, as you, as you said, is Smoke and Mirrors, How You're Being Fooled About Mental Illness and Insider's Warning to Consumers. So the book is primarily directed at the consumer or potential consumer of mental mm -hmm. health services, although I still think it could be of value to the professional circles, too, uh, because there are many of our colleagues that have never heard of this idea that Thomas Sauer started. Um, so Can I just interrupt for a second? Because we're on the same page. I can still remember where I was sitting when I read Zas's uh, book uh, and the powerful effect it had on me just on you. Uh, on you. Uh, his best book is The Manufacture of Madness. Yeah, he wrote that subsequent to The Myth of Mental Illness. It's, I think, much better. And if you, any of you listeners go into my archive and go back a couple of years, I did an interview on this very podcast with Zas. Mm. And, and that uh, had a tremendous uh, response. Um, so I just throw that in because we're really the same emotional child in a way, intellectually and emotionally, of Zas. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and that's one of the, the things that perplexed me, that even though he wrote this book, uh, the, the Myth of Mental Illness, 60 years ago, um, and, and despite the, the, the strong impact it had and the, and the challenge and threat that it had to the mental health industry at that time, this myth just continues to this day. And that's what shocked me the most, is I... So when I read the book um, in the late 90s, the, the, the mental health industry was still going strong as a sort of a biologically focused, illness, disease focused uh, uh, endeavor. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what prompted me in my mind to I asked the question, why is this? Why is this myth continuing despite uh, his cogent ar arguments in that book and, and subsequent ones, like The Manufacture of Madness, which it compares mental illness, the myth of mental illness to the myth of witchcraft. Yes. Um, and, and so I started looking through uh, what other writings had been, had, had been done, uh, and there have been many, many since then, but still the, the convention, the mainstream, and clearly the lay public believes in the myth of mental, mental illness, that there are these things that people catch called mental illnesses. They are really disease processes. They are really right. matters for a medical model to look at, 
Um, and so the, my book is an attempt to look into why that's continuing and um, to try to maybe turn up the volume of our critique of this, this large system. Right. But, you know, I want to just throw in something again, because I've done so much thinking on this, just as you have. Psychiatry, the medical model of psychiatry, is really a religion, a secular religion. Religions are an organized set of ideas that purport to help people solve very serious problems. And it's very hard to mess around with somebody's belief when they have faith in the religion. Because the religion doesn't operate on evidence, it operates on faith. And many of the people who have criticized us clearly never read the book, Myth of Mental Illness. It was a powerful article in one of the major publications a few years ago in which they said, how can a man, how can a man say that delusions and hallucinations don't exist? And it's clear that nobody had picked up, never said that. Right. Yeah, that, he never that said is- that. They right, didn't read the book, and they were tearing into the book. You know, he was uh, fired from Upstate Medical, right. where he was a teacher. They tried to get his license, but they failed. Right. I mean, so they went after him, like anybody who criticizes any religion, uh, and they went after him for blood. Now, they were successful in, in firing or... or uh encouraging people to quit uh, his, uh, his students, some of his students. Yes, uh, yes, yes. They, they just... Very unfortunate. Yes, and that's what we're up against, that we're, we're dealing with an entrenched kind of religion that people take on faith, and it's like going into a church or a, or a synagogue and screaming, God doesn't exist. <laughs> no, 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 you don't mess around with faith with just evidence you don't talk facts and, and that to me is one of the reasons why we have such difficulty yeah, so but classic, we continue the classic straw man argument is what it is that yes. um, the, 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 those who guard this myth frequently accuse us of claiming that mental illness doesn't exist or we don't believe in mental illness and that obviously that would be a, an easily refuted accusation as you just pointed out but that's not our claim it's that our mm-hmm. claim is these problems that do, are called mental illness uh, are not real illnesses, and as you said, they are they are really uh, a very entrenched and large system of moral pronouncements about the appropriate ways to act and to think and to feel. Right. Uh, and it's, so let's talk about if they're not illnesses, according to what you reason in your book, what are they? They're not illnesses. So what are we dealing with when somebody comes in and says, I'm crazy, or I think I'm crazy, or uh, commonly, there's something wrong with me? Right. Um, what do we do? What are we, what are we dealing with? Saz said that what we're dealing with is problems in living. Um, okay. And I think that's a very, a very nice, uh, succinct uh, description of what it really is. It's a variety of different kinds of distressing experiences primarily that are associated with some distressing behaviors uh, distressing beliefs and things like that Um, but they're not due to 
some kind of disease process in the body. They're not about malfunctioning people. Uh, there's no evidence of that. Right. Uh, the, the, interestingly, right. one of the one of the publishers I sent this manuscript to rejected it because they 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 said that very thing. They said I'm. I am claiming that mental illness doesn't exist, and that's unbelievable. And despite right. me trying to explain that that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what anybody in this field is saying, no. uh, right. that's, that's the mantra. Yes. And what is the current mantra about why all of this distressing behavior and emotions are taking place? Well, the what biggest is it? one is that there's a chemical imbalance in the brain. Right. Uh, or some kind of genetic anomaly, but the biggest one, the most popular one, is that uh, you know imbalances of serotonin or dopamine or other chemicals in the brain are what cause these problems called mental illnesses, such as depression. Uh, I try to point right. out in the book, and I go through the chemical imbalance theory in some detail, to deconstruct it a bit. It's, the mistake is to think that chemical changes in the brain are disease processes or in some way pathological, but as you know, anything we do and anything we think and anything we feel uh, theoretically has a signature brain change going on, and that includes yes. chemicals going up and down and, and uh, you know activity going from this center of the brain to that center. Uh, that doesn't necessarily... That's not the definition of pathology. It, we would have to see some kind of damage to the brain or missing part or a, a tumor that's not supposed to be there. Right. That and is there any evidence that you have discovered or anybody has discovered that demonstrates that such a pathology of the brain actually exists that can explain any of the behaviors or emotional responses that are being called mental illness? Uh, I want to say zero, none, but I have to caveat you could say that. <laughs> in that there are some things that have been called mental illnesses that were later found out to be the mental symptoms of a true disease process. So, for exactly. instance, uh, neurosyphilis is a real disease process of the brain, and that you get that when you have syphilis for many years and it's untreated. Uh, I think Al Capone had that problem, but anyways, the one of the symptoms is strange uh, actions and thoughts and behaviors and so forth. So uh, someone would see the person as crazy, but that crazy is a real mental symptom of a real disease of the brain. But yes, that's not mental illness. None, you know. That, no, so therefore, if it's not mental illness, it's a physical illness. It's just a, a real I medical illness. I just say huh? illness. An illness is an illness. No physical and mental. It's, you know, mental illness is a, a metaphor that's kind of lost its metaphorical meaning, um, and it's it's it doesn't make any sense. It's, if, if you that's right. But if you say there is a real illness, then a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a social worker wouldn't continue working with that patient. You would have a neurosurgeon, a, a, a endocrinologist, or somebody who's expert in the pathology of the brain to the degree that they understand the relationship between that physical process and the psychological process that we're observing. Exactly. Yes? Or, or some other kind of medical specialty such as nutritional science, endocrinology, yes. 
because all of those other subspecialties of, of true medicine, uh, there are disease processes that those people look at that have mental symptoms. I mean, it, it, just a, a humorous example, if you hit me in the foot with a hammer and I scream, my scream doesn't mean I have a mental illness. There was a physiological thing that happened that was damaging right. to my toe, and I experienced it as pain. So it would be silly to call these things that are real illnesses, mental illnesses, just because they have mental symptoms. Yes. So all of us in the mental health industry are, seem to be trapped because if we don't call somebody mentally ill, we can't get third-party payments. We can't earn a living unless we go along with this, this myth. Right. What do we Although do about I, that? Yeah, technically, we call somebody mentally ill. I don't do it. Um, you know, I don't tell my clients that I work with, you're mentally ill. What I say to them the first time I see them is, listen, we have a problem here. If you want to use your health insurance benefits to get my assistance, I have to diagnose you with a mental illness. And I'm, I'll tell you, people are shocked when they hear that. They didn't notice that. They didn't think of that. But it's true. Right, right, right. Yeah, and it has to be it has to be one of the official categories. It can't be one of what we call the uh, Z codes or, you know, these minor problems in living like right. parent-child relationship problem. But it has to be some formal mental illness diagnosis. And what I tell my people is you're welcome to not use your health insurance if you don't want to deal with that, but obviously it's more costly. But what I do to try to to uh, soften the blow on this is I diagnose most everybody I see with the same diagnosis, and that's called an adjustment disorder. Adjustment and disorder. Adjustment is probably not going to cause any harm to people in terms of um, you know, interfering with their job or security clearance or adoption rights or other kinds of eligibility for services. Uh, because right now, if if you get a diagnosis of, let's say, bipolar disorder, that could very well end your uh, chances of getting any kind of, you know, security clearance or, or high sensitive, highly sensitive job. And, and Chuck, I think this is something we have to make very clear to people. Um, when they accept a diagnosis or they seek a diagnosis. Uh, just recently, I was talking uh, with the uh, head of special education in a uh, suburban district north of uh, New York, wealthy community, where more and more people are paying up to $12,000 for a psychologist to diagnose their child learning disabled so that they can game the SATs and the ACTs and get more time to finish it. Right, absolutely. And what they don't realize is this diagnosis will go into, unless they paid cash and there's no record of it, but the minute that went into the insurance company, they don't know when in the future their adult working person can change a job and be asked, were you ever diagnosed with a mental disorder or mental disease? and bite them in the ass. It never goes away. Yeah, it does bite them in the ass. It, it will have a significant effect, especially with young adults who are just starting out. You know, it's already a, that's already an incredibly difficult time in life, the late teens, early 20s. Um, yes. And you don't need to throw a diagnosis in your record because you're right. You're not going to get – there's a lot of things you will not be able to get with a 
a mental illness diagnosis, depending on the, the label itself. And I, I worry that as, as our society gets more interconnected, uh, government and industry pries more into our private lives, that you might see mental illness diagnoses also being used to deny financial uh, assistance or absolutely yes things like that. It's yeah. almost you know I, I consider a mental illness diagnosis uh, in your system in, in your record just as bad as if you have a criminal record. It, it follows you like that, and it can affect exactly. you just like that. that yes, and I think. To make clear to everybody listening that they have to take this very seriously, that there's nothing benign about being called crazy in whatever manifestation of words. Because, you know, when I came into the field, this is a long time ago, there were only 25 mental illnesses listed. And now it's over 500. There isn't any behavior that apparently can't be used as a diagnostic category. Right. The, the mental, the, the classification system, and, and I would think even any classification system, there are, you know, the main ones, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and the International Classification of Diseases, uh, but there are other alternatives out there that might have just as uh, a bad a reputation as the DSM and ICD, but it, it, they're written in such broad terms and they are so inclusive that they're sort of like horoscopes. If If I... You know, if I read a horoscope to you and told you... I like that. Yeah. It has the same validity as a horoscope. <laughs> yeah, if, if I read a, a, one of them and, and told you, this is your sign, and I read it, and you'll go, oh, my God, they got it right right down pat. That is me. And then I say, oh, by the way, that wasn't your sign. That was somebody else's. That's the way these mental illness diagnostic categories are written. They're so broad and, and vague that... I could, if I wanted to, I wouldn't want to, but I could diagnose anybody with anything just depending on how I interview them and, and what my focus is on. Uh, yes. That is, that is and have you had the experience of starting to work with somebody, you fill out the insurance form, there's an initial diagnosis, and then the more you learn about them in their present behavior and in their past behavior, given the crisis they might have been in at one point or another and how they handle it, they could have 30, 40, 50, 60 diagnoses made because these are just judgments, moral judgments about a piece of behavior that is being judged. There's no medical issue here at all. Exactly. They're, they're, uh, they're no better than calling somebody an idiot. The, the term yes. idiot is as useful a, a label as a mental illness diagnosis. Yeah, schmuck is a good one. You want to have schmuck? Just add disorder. <laughs> he <laughs> suffers from schmuck disorder. <laughs> right. And that's what it takes. And there is a panel of psychiatrists working with the American Psychiatric Association whose whole job is to include diagnoses and exclude them. Mm -hmm. uh, homosexuality used to be Right. A serious mental disorder. Uh, it's now an alternative lifestyle. I suppose enough psychiatrists came out and they said, oh, we got to get rid of that one. Well, they have, you know that that changed in 1973 after a, uh, uh, a, a poll of the American Psychiatric Association members to ask them whether they thought homosexuality was an illness or not. And because of the vote, it was removed from the 
Did it work? That was exactly the mechanism? Yeah. That got it out, yeah. Yeah, I have, I don't know, it's in my book someplace. But, um, yeah, there was a um, uh, behavioral sciences, a journal called Behavioral Sciences, an article about this, and it was interesting because the, the words they used, the way they, the way they languaged the process made it sound like a scientific process. So it was something like, you know, they, they queried the membership and um, most people thought that homosexuality was normal while others still considered it pathological. Right. Uh, and it, some, some other kind of wording that made it sound like it was sort of a study, but it wasn't. It was a vote. Yes. And you know that's how other diagnostic categories are included and excluded from the DSM. The DSM committees get together every once in a while and say, how about this, how about this, not that. Yes, yes. That's, you know, well, from a, I don't know if you wrote in your book, because I hope someday to read your book. I really am excited to read it, because I know how well you think and how you articulate your ideas, so I really would like to read this. Uh, but in the history of this, the, one of the first diagnoses was done by, created by Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush was a physician who signed the Declaration of Independence. And he came up with the disease drapedomania, which was the illness that caused slaves to run away from their master. Correct. And the only way you can cure it, because this was a very contagious disease, once one slave ran away, others would follow, because it was such a highly communicable disease. And the only way really to stamp it out was to hang the slave till he's dead, because otherwise he was a carrier of this disease. Right, and there's more to it than that too, Larry. It's, there was another diagnosis called dysesthesia aphiopica, and that Go ahead. was that was said to cause them to be lazy. And <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. I've never heard that one. Right. <laughs> it's, in a, it's in a very old book uh, called Diseases and Peculiarities of the Negro Race. Uh, 1851. Oh. Wow. Um, but, yeah, but it's, yeah, you, we, we look at this now, we laugh at it, but. Uh, yeah, but you and I are not laughing because, you see, nothing has changed. You're right. Well, this, this has changed, luckily. This religion, yes, you can't use those diagnoses, but they keep coming up with one after another. I'll tell you, I, I had a patient who was violently raped, and she was in therapy with me for several years trying to deal with two emotional crises the first was of course what was done to her in the course of the rape how it changed her way of seeing the world and herself and the sense of violation the second was the fact that the guy who raped her got three months probation on the promise of going to therapy because he suffered from intermittent explosive disorder and was therefore mentally ill and held not fully responsible for what he did to her I'm sorry, it's the same thing as drapedomania. Right, and it, it double-traumatizes people who... Yes, oh yes, yes. So she would say to me, I'm in therapy for two years, and he's out in the street looking probably to rape somebody else, because he can get away with it that he's mentally defective. I mean, just amazing. So we got to get rid of this. Yeah, well, that's that's one thing I'm trying to do in the book, and I... 
I think as we just we just talked about these two diagnoses with slaves, um, you can see how language is used as a smokescreen, and that's the title of my book, Smoke and Mirrors. That's one of the pieces of the smoke and mirrors, the language. So we use language uh, in 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 the in the system, and we say uh -huh. something that sounds medical, but it really isn't medical. So, for instance, yes. you could you we we frequently hear uh, medically minded mental health professionals say things like the treatment was effective in in uh, reducing the symptoms of her depression, that kind of language. But what right. that what that phrase really means is talking to her over several months helped her to help to lessen her emotional pain about the circumstances in her life. That's the second phrase is a more realistic and obviously non-medical way to describe the exact same thing that mm -hmm. language was used to describe it. And there's a lot of that going on, a lot of euphemism and um, medical language put in place of non-medical language that gives the impression of real disease. Exactly. That isn't about real disease. And even with psychiatric drugs, you know, a phrase might be something like uh, uh, Zoloft sedated her, I'm sorry, Zoloft um, helped to, uh, was effective in reducing the patient's symptoms of depression, when in fact what's going on is the chemicals that she ingested sedated her so much that she wasn't able to fully notice emotional pain. So that's how and what else she can she notice? Uh, you know, we back in before ISEPP was ICSPP. We had a conference in which uh, people who testified—it was really like a being testify a testification—that they didn't feel they felt less depressed. They felt everything less. And one of the things that happened is they lost sexual desire. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't get sad, you can't get happy. If you, you can't get aroused one way, you don't get aroused anyway. Right. Um, you, don't get aroused, you don't get excited about anything. Yes. So these drugs are not medicines to correct a, a, a medical problem. They basically disable the normal functioning of the brain. Right. They actually create the chemical imbalance. And I'm sure you discuss, I, I look through, do you talk about at all the relationship of these psychiatric drugs to violence? Yes, um, I, I talk about it more Want to say a word about that? Yes, I, there is. I, I talk about it in more detail in a paper I wrote that was published in ICEP's journal, uh, Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry, uh, right. a couple years ago. And, um, yes, the... The basic idea is that the, the basic lay idea and the general uh, consensus among conventional mental health providers is that psychiatric drugs will prevent someone from being violent. That's, the, that's why they're prescribed to someone who's suicidal or homicidal. The thought is that if you know, we, we can sedate this person, uh, they're not going to act on their urges. But the problem is that the use of drugs, any kind of drug, any kind of psychotropic chemical, actually is one of the risk factors in violent behavior. So whereas many people um, report, as you just said, that when they take psychiatric drugs, they feel numb, they can't get up, they can't get down, they don't care about anything, 
paradoxically, they don't like that feeling. And that feeling can be very, very agitating and can lead to impulsive behavior. And it's very clear that whereas not everyone, obviously, who takes these drugs commits violent acts, most everyone we've seen in the news who has committed a mass murder of some sort was on the psychiatric drugs. But if you look at risk factors for violence in anybody, use of chemicals is one of the big risk factors, in addition to a lot of other things. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it, is, it is a very dangerous thing we do to resort so quickly to a chemical to deal with what is essentially uh, an existential problem in living, a personal problem, a spiritual problem, an economic problem, uh, yes. But it clearly isn't, has, there's no defect in the body that these drugs address or, or cure. That's why they're not cured. And once, nothing to cure. And once they've expect, accepted the label, the capacity, don't you think, to solve existential problems, to solve economic problems, to solve political problems goes down. I'm oh, just absolutely. a sick person. It's sort of the opposite of the placebo effect. It's been termed nocebo. Yes, yes. Uh, and it, Talk about that. Believe, yeah, if you believe that you have some inherent biological defect in your body that prevents you from doing certain things, then you will live your life that way. People will treat you that way, and it's just self-reinforcing. Uh, and so, yes, it you give up, basically, and you, you, you resign your life to uh, a very low status and lack of functioning when you don't have to yeah. do that well it's very difficult to escape from the you know especially if a patient uh, when I worked at a flushing hospital for 25 years and about five or ten years into my work there we became the outpatient clinic for um, uh, Creedmoor State Hospital and the stories that I heard, once you were labeled and you accepted the label that you were, let's say, schizophrenic, mm -hmm. you were told you'll never recover. The best you're able, ever able to do is lead a stress-free life and take your drugs, take your medication. Uh, I, and I, I had one patient after another whose lives were literally destroyed forever because they now had been enslaved in, in what I consider a, an authoritarian, totalitarian political system. Um, it, it, it's, it's, you, so the more you talk about it, the more upsetting it should be to the general public. And what we're doing now is trying to get a message out, and we need a lot of people to join in in getting this message out. How do we do that? Uh, that's a good question, Larry. I mean, my book is one way I'm trying. Uh, uh, ICEP, International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, that's another way. And I would encourage any listeners, if you're there listening, to consider joining us. Uh, go to our website at psychintegrity.org and uh, read about us, read about the things we're trying to say. It, it is a problem we have because we are, I like to. I like to describe it as we are like, uh, whispers in a shouting match. We yes. are trying to say our message, but there's so much shouting going on. Not only the shouting by the conventional mental health industry uh, doling out its lies about what's going on with people, 
but also when they hear us, they shout us down. They they resort to ad hominem attacks to try to. I mean, and I'm sure they would even turn the system on us and say that yes. uh, I have oppositional defiant disorder or delusional disorder or something like that. Exactly. To try to describe. I've been labeled disorder. many times from my points of view in the books I've written as schizophrenic. Uh, I, I, one of the reasons I finally retired, well, it, was a lot, it wasn't just one reason, that the, supposedly the nursing department of my uh, uh, school, we had a big, very successful nursing program at the college I worked in, and they came up with this when they discovered what I was really teaching, because I would literally take the DSM and show them diagnoses in the DSM and then deconstruct it. Mm-hmm. Right? And the students understood it right away. The minute the nursing department got hold of this, they went to my chairman and said, this man is crazy. You have to stop him from teaching this stuff. My courses, I was the senior professor in the department by that point. Uh, I was taken, without any discussion, away from teaching any mental uh, uh, abnormal psychology courses. it, it, it was really terrifying. Now, my career was about over at the college, but I left under very painful, difficult conditions. I had colleagues that I, I worked with for 30 years who were announcing to their classes, don't take Professor Simon for any psychology courses. He's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's all. Very hard to fight. Very oh, hard to fight. And the minute you get excited and upset, it proves you're crazy. <laughs> That's what happens. Because anything can be turned into a symptom of the illness. Exactly. Once you are, uh, once you're labeled with any kind of uh, diagnosis, especially if you believe it, then now you have a reason for all kinds of things you do and experience. Oh, that must be my my mental illness. Yes. Uh, I, I I mentioned in the book my experience growing up. Um, if they had the diagnostic term, then. I may have been called autistic. Uh, I, I did a uh, I did a screening for autism as part of this book just to see what it would say. I was curious, and it the screening tool online said that, and it's a, it was a serious screening tool, said that I may be autistic. You know, I have I have symptoms that are in the autism range, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the now, spectrum, Chuck. On the spectrum. Right, but they have you know, broadened it point where almost any kid who's a little odd, unusual, different in his orientation to the world is on the spectrum. Right, and, and if my parents were told that, they would have said, ah, that's why he memorizes all the exactly. and that's why, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it, it's, it's silly. I mean, what, if, if I got labeled that back then, I probably would have been pushed into a psychiatric pipeline. I probably would have been treated that way. I may even have accepted the identity and started living my life exactly. that way. Yes, yeah, you'd have a ruined identity. I'm sorry? A ruined identity. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier um, about your, your experience and, and everything you did they called crazy. Uh, it, it, it goes so far, and you know this, that even if you disagree with the diagnosis or you even disagree that you have a problem that's yes. also a symptom of a mental illness yes it's called it's called anosognosia um, 
that if you yes. it means you don't have insights into the fact that you're mentally ill. So they you know, right. they've got you both ways. If you agree you're mentally ill, you are. If you don't agree, you still are. And there's yes. no way to get around that. Yeah. It's like being called a sinner. Right. If you agree you're a sinner and if you disagree, then you're worse a sinner, because <laughs> now you have the sin of disagreeing with the authority who told you that you're a sinner. You're going against God's word. So you're definitely a yeah. sinner, right? Oh, boy. And that, 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 so you have to be complicit. Otherwise, you pay the, the price uh, of, of and, and I'm, I know you talk about the chapter on forced hospitalization, and people who are uh, uh, belong to uh, you know the, the groups that are were victims of enforced hospitalization and treatment that was against their will. Yeah, and that's it, the, uh, the 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 uh, percentage of people who are uh, involuntarily hospitalized is larger than what the statistics show because a very common tactic by the hospitals or the, the professionals in those hospitals is to approach you and say, listen, I think you need to be hospitalized, and if you don't agree, we're going to do it involuntarily anyways. Right. Okay, right. It'll be better for you if you agree. So people agree. And so that goes into the books as a, a voluntary, with consent. Hospitalization, yeah. And it's not, not at all. I've got a couple uh, examples, real-life examples of people. Uh, one is uh, a veteran. Uh, and another is uh, a person who wasn't in the military. But it goes, I go through in detail their stories about what happened to them, and it, it almost reads like a Twilight Zone script. The, the way that <laughs> they started out in a very you know, innocuous problem that because mental health authorities were brought, it was brought to the attention of mental health authorities, turned into this horrible... Um, involuntary, inhumane, forced treatment kind of a situation. Uh, and, and those are just two I know of that I chose to put in the book. There's, there's thousands out there that occur. Yes. And it starts to sound very much like the Inquisition. It is like the, you know, Sobs was right. It, this is yes, the, I think it's absolutely right. Yeah, that that it's, it's a form of Inquisition. Yeah, the myth of witchcraft, and they're very much similar. It's just that, you know, what happened in the uh, Age of Enlightenment, so somewhere around the 18th or 19th centuries, uh, strange behavior by people in society. And we always have people in society who are on the margins who, because, you know, people are normally distribu distributed in anything they do, so there will be very, very few people who do certain things. Um, and so those people at one time were thought to be suffering from some kind of religious or spiritual deficiency, and that's yes. who dealt with the problem. That's what Saz was pointing out. And so you had things like the Inquisition occur and witch burnings and things like that. And then at some point after the age of, or during the Age of Enlightenment, science kind of crept in to take over. And you mentioned Benjamin Rush, uh, who's also considered the father of American psychiatry. He right. published book in 1812 called Observations and Inquiries Upon the Diseases of the Mind, and his idea was to use medical science to address those problems. Right. Uh, but notice, they started, this means the field of psychiatry started off with an oxymoron. It started off looking at diseases of the mind. It didn't say the body, and, and Rush's idea wasn't that 
we should take the, uh, the diseases that neurologists and physiologists look at and take them over. He was talking about taking over people who were in insane asylums uh, and, you know, who were housed out of sight from the rest of society because they were annoying and thought to be defective in some way. Yes. There was no medical problem with them. No. And the problem, Bart, you see, part of it, you would talk about the myth of language or, or, or the creative. The mind is not a thing. When you say, I have a mind, you're turning psychological processes, which have to be described with verbs, into a noun. And you're reifying it. You make it into an object. And that is one of the fatal mistakes in talking about diseases of the mind or mental illnesses. You're right. It's very... The mind really, I have a a lot of, I go into this probably in more depth than I ought to uh, in the book, in the second part of the book, trying to describe this difference between body and mind. And um, I think I do it well enough that I avoid the dualism trap that, uh, you know, if we propose there are two things, body and mind, and that they interact, we have a problem because we cannot demonstrate how they interact. I'm not proposing that because what they are, are just two language categories we use to describe our experiences of a person. When we say mind, we're not describing the person's mind. We're actually describing their actions and their speech, and we're using our mind, our understanding of our own mind, to speculate what that must be like. But mind is purely experience. There's nothing more than that. So it can't be disease. It's ridiculous to consider. Impossible. It's logically and factually impossible for a behavior by itself to be an illness or a disease. Right, a behavior or an experience. It's impossible for it to be diseased. Yes. And so, so what is psychiatry doing? Uh, You know, they're they're the only thing they have left to do, really, behind the smoke and mirrors, the only thing they have left to do is continue the pre-enlightenment task of making moral judgments on people and then housing them, restricting their access, not letting them be the way they are being so that they don't... Or selling endless amounts of drugs, drugs, and more drugs. Right. And now it's an enormous business. And even psychologists now are starting to realize that the future is not psychotherapy or talking to people and trying to help them understand what they're trapped in, the language traps they're in, and the psychological pain they're in, uh, and how they've been dealing with it in a way that only causes more pain, but to take more and more drugs. And they, well, I think they're called now, they call themselves psychopharmacologists. And I have a warning for all our friends who are in the field of psychotherapy that unless we get away, and I have to say something about that in a minute, but unless we, uh, the field gets away from this metaphor, it's going to be, I don't think there's going to be a psychotherapy field except for a small number of people who can earn a living with people who are, uh, can pay and not be labeled. Right, and there'll be a lot of, there'll be a lot of uh, um, very brief, very instructional uh, counselors, yes. perhaps not licensed, perhaps not at a you know at a graduate level, but counselors, exactly. or maybe even an app on your phone. Then when you type in "I'm depressed," it tells you what to do, and that is yes. not 
any way sufficient to deal with the meaningful life problems that are behind these things we call depression and anxiety and PTSD and you name it. Uh, exactly, exactly. And, 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 and we're not defeating it. Uh, I should add something in, in terms of the, the uh, uh, to, to be clear about this. I'm no longer really working in the field. Uh, I'm writing the same book as you are. I feel like you are my mirror twin. <laughs> I really do. I'm so happy to have met you at this point. But I'm fully retired. And my book is being written as a professional memoir or a professional... Uh, 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 yeah, that's a good word for it. Uh, I'm writing a professional autobiography where I go through exactly what you're going through, uh, what I've learned, and our conclusions are the same. Uh, and my feeling is that really what we do in psychotherapy is a kind of education. People learn about themselves and the mental traps they're in and better ways of handling the pain that they've been handling. Um, so I have a chapter on education because I also taught for, for 40 years as well as worked as a psychologist for 50 years. Um, so I'm, when I say we, I'm being dishonest in a sense because I'm not we anymore. I'm writing something from a retrospective that I'm no longer really a part of, except I'm, you know, very happy to be a member of ISEPP and, and be in contact with other people in the field. Uh, but the people in the field are the ones who are going to have to take, take your message, my message, Zasa's message, uh, and, and what's happening to them, and, and take it very seriously. Yeah, I think uh, very otherwise, I don't think there's a future for the field. Yeah, I think that is very important what you said, but I think another very important uh, direction we should go, and that's the main reason for my book, is to the potential consumers. And the, the it's almost like if you want to get rid of a, a politician, convince the voters to yes. not vote for that person. If we want yes. to get rid of this conventional, inhumane mental health system, we have to convince the voters. We have to convince the people yes. who are going to be the target of this system to not do, at least if they go for help, to at least be aware of these people yes. that yes. will get them in trouble. And yes. um, and unfortunately, it's you know, with the with the world of social media now, we have an opportunity, to, uh, another uh, or a new way to get the word out a little bit better, and it's through social media. You know how things go quickly throughout the the blogosphere and Facebook pages and Twitter pages and so forth. Yeah, yeah well, I, that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, I do it for other reasons, why I'm doing these kind of blogs, these this podcast. Mm -hmm. I reach a lot of people, ultimately. Uh, in fact, you're going to be, this, you and I will be heard all over the world by tomorrow. Uh, I have about a quarter of the people I, I reach live in the United States, uh, all over Europe, I have weird plays. I have a constant set of listeners from Zambia. Wait a second. I got more people coming on. Let me get them on, okay? Okay. Hello? Hello? Hello. Yes. Hi. Who are you? Hi there. I'm Camille from Tennessee. <clears throat> Camille from where? Tennessee. I, I am a member of Ashton. Oh, Tennessee. Uh, Yes, 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 this is a wonderful podcast. I've been listening to several of your podcasts, Dr. Simon. I'm glad. Hi, Camille. Uh, do you yeah, have questions, uh, 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 Dr. Ruby? 
Yes. Yeah, well, uh, well uh, for both of you, I, I was wondering. I've been. We've been listening. I'm here with my uh, mother, and what, you mentioned Benjamin Rush. One of my questions was: I had read probably just some uh, something that's going around, but one of the quotes that he had said was: "Unless we put medical freedom into the Constitution, the time will come when medicine will organize." into an undercover dictatorship to restrict the art of healing to one class of men and denial of equal privileges to others. The Constitution of the Republic should make a special privilege for medical freedoms as well as religious freedoms. And my question was, <clears throat> is this, was this sort of a sinister sort of quote that he would have written um, that that you know in uh, at at that time, or do you think it's it's attributed to the wrong person? Um, I just heard you mention that earlier in this podcast. <laughs> I thought I would ask. Yeah, well, I think he believed it. Yeah, I do too. I think I, this I, is his faith, Chuck. I, well, I agree. I. I... Uh, I have never heard that before, and that is really interesting that he... Yes, it is. It's ironic that, is. that he said that, and yet he started a system. Well, I wouldn't. I don't want to blame him only, but he's the father of American psychiatry. Um, he started a system that did the exact opposite and doesn't care much about freedom. Of the yeah. freedom. Well, you see, once you've been labeled mentally ill, you are now not considered responsible enough to have freedom. And so it is, it is in your interest to be drugged or locked up or prevented from doing things that the doctor has said are crazy. Right? And so what you really have is a totalitarian system. The difference between authoritarian and totalitarian, as I write about it and talk about it, in an authoritarian system you have to be a good little boy or a good little girl and be obedient in your behavior. In a totalitarian system, you have to be obedient in thought. Probably the best thing that was ever written about that was Orwell's 1984. In other words, you have to believe if the, if you, the authority tells you you're crazy for saying two and two is four, then you have to believe them if they say two and two is five. And I'm yeah. not going to get into politics of what's going on now but there's an awful lot of that going around sure you know don't uh, believe your uh, own eyes believe what the authority tells you and now it has medical backing and which more revered authority do you have in your life other than your priest or your rabbi than your doctor yeah yeah and when I when I had read that uh, comment. I, I I'll pass that out to ISEF, which which is just. Yeah, I'd like such to a, see all the. I'd like to see. I'll, 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 yeah. I'll absolutely send it to the group, and I just. By the way, I would just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Simon and Dr. Ruby, for the work you're doing. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Such a. It's just truly a blessing to be in ISEF with both of you, and 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 just. Thank you. I know that you're the therapists and the psychologists and doctors, but I can't understand. I mean, you, you need to be encouraged as well <laughs> to know that it's doing such a great work. Anyway. Um, I appreciate that. 
Appreciate it. Both uh, of us appreciate that. Yeah. And what, okay. What a great book that's going to be. Um, so I, it, it, it does make you wonder with a comment like that, would, would he have had that, would he have been able, and I'm not trying to knock him at all, but would somebody have been able to be that sinister into, into uh, being able to stop that from being medical freedom being put into our Constitution for this purpose, or was he naive? Yes. And, and did yes. he really make that comment? You know, it's well, hard to know. It's hard to know, and I think it's his faith. I think he just believed it. I think he was naive in the sense that he had no idea what was going to happen over the next 250 years. That, right. You know, that, that we would have a system that double speaks so much. So, so for instance, let me, I know we're getting close. I think we're getting close, Larry, to the end. Is that right? I, we can run it over a bit, too. It, it, it's fine. Uh, this, is, this is from the American Psychological Association's Ethical Principles and Code of Conduct. And it's one of the principles is called respect for people's rights and dignity. And it says, psychologists respect the dignity and worth of all people and the rights of individuals to privacy, confidentiality, and self-determination. But then it says, right after that, and listen carefully to this, psychologists are aware that special safeguards may be necessary to protect the rights and welfare of persons or communities whose vulnerabilities impair autonomous decision-making. Wow, wow, I, didn't real, I never realized that was in there. That last mm. part, this has something to do with the torture debate and the waterboarding thing and the APA. Are you, when you were in the military, were you involved in, 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 in investigating that? Not the, Because that was a failure of our was, field. That was post-2001, the 9-11 uh, oh, yeah, so you were out already. I retired in 1999. Now, I can tell you that for a few years leading up to 9-11, I was involved in uh, developing the curriculum for Air Force psychologists, and one of the things was how to react to terrorism, um, ma weapons of mass destruction, and things like that. But this, mm -hmm. this wording was put into, this, into the code after that brouhaha started, and it basically, it, it looks like it's saying that we respect the dignity and rights of people and medical freedom, like Benjamin Rush mentioned. But it turns right around, and it uses this euphemistic phrase that basically right. says, if I think, just me, and, and if I think based on nothing but my own personal decision, that you are not capable of autonomous decision-making. You know, yeah. Or a whole community is not capable. Did that say yeah, that? ever determined that other than the fact that you're labeled with a mental illness. You're labeled yes. with a mental illness because I decided you your decision-making is impaired, and your decision-making is impaired because I labeled you with a mental illness. So yes. that, what that means is, yes, it's all this nice wording about self-determination, but at the same time it says, I can do whatever I want to with you, including restrict your right. freedom. I think right. I want to. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, that, and I don't think well. Rush ever thought it was going to come to this. Mm. Interesting. No. Well, okay. I think maybe we'll call it an, uh, uh, an evening. Okay. Uh, Chuck, um, I can't thank you enough. I hope we oh, get I a very large listenership uh, on this. Not only from uh, I. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, your name from Tennessee. What, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. I forget everybody's name now. Oh, 
yes, Dr. Simon. My name is Camille Harrison. I'm from Tennessee. And uh, Camille. I really appreciate your... Yes, sir. Oh, you are a member. Okay, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yes, yes. I'm I'm a member of ISEP, and I just really appreciate this podcast and all the work that everyone in here, you know, are that's doing. That's great. And uh, looking forward to the new book. And I look forward to reading your book sometime, too, Dr. Simon. I'm sorry I haven't found it yet. But the Yeah, book, no, it's uh, not out yet. I'm, I'm almost finished with it. And I think I'm going to have it self-published. I have a company called Book Baby that will do a nice job in getting it on the market. And then when it comes yeah. out, I'll let everybody in ISIP know that it's out. And I hope That's to right. see Chuck's book out because I think his book is a, 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 going to be a small masterpiece and very important. Absolutely. Okay. It's a great title. Great title. Thank you. Thank Good, you. Night. Good, Chuck. Night, Good night, Larry. Good night, Camille. Good night. And... Um, Send out a message about this. I'll send out one too, and uh, I'll get it online. I go through. I, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I jumped off Facebook. I, I think that's a sewer that that thing. I, but I'm still on uh, on uh, Twitter, so I'll tweet and see what we can get out. And I hope we can do this again sometime, Chuck. Absolutely, anytime. Just let me know if I can find a time. I'd be glad to. Yeah, yeah. You're still busy, and I'm still looking for things to do. Okay. <laughs> take care. All right. Take care. Good night. Have a nice night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.